I mean, here's a great guy who loved his kids, loved his family. It's absolutely horrible because, yeah, he's robbed of his legacy. That does bother me, but I, th- I think all we can do is put his case out there. The day that Robert Richard Lepsey went missing was like a lot of other days in his life. He woke up, kissed his wife, Jackie, and said goodbye to his four children, then left for his job as store manager at Glen's Market. Though he was only 33 years old, Robert, who went by his middle name, Richard, and often by Dick, was a responsible and trusted member of his community of Grayling, a sleepy small town in northern Michigan. He was an all-American dad, all-American husband, neighbor, co-worker. He was really a nice guy, um, spoken of highly by everybody who knew him. And it was just, uh, you know, it was, it really piqued my curiosity that he just vanished. That was Ross Richardson, author of the book Still Missing, which chronicles the details of Lepsey's disappearance. Ross spent years investigating the Lepsey case and knows every detail of this story, like the back of his hand. He's fascinated with it. He was born in Chicago and grew up in Chicago. And his family had a home in Grayling, Michigan, which is a small town in the center of northern Michigan. And they would vacation there in the summers. Well, they decided to move to Grayling for his senior year of high school at Grayling High School. And he met a young lady by the name of Jackie. And they ended up uh, going to prom and dating their senior year. And they ended up marrying a year after graduating. Both were 19 years old. And they initially lived in Chicago, but they wanted to move back to northern Michigan. They thought it was more family friendly. So after a few years and uh, a couple children, they moved back to northern Michigan and ended up with four children, three boys and a girl. So they were high school sweethearts? Yes, they were. Did they have a good relationship? Did you find anything out about what their marriage was like? Uh, Very good. Very good. He was an involved father and uh, a a good husband. They were often seen around town. Uh, They would go out on Saturday nights for drinks with friends, other couples. And uh, Robert Richard Lepsey spent a lot of time with his kids, reading poetry, uh, cooking, watching Sunday football, things like this. So he was uh, really, if you think about a neighbor that's just an average all-American guy and a friendly guy, that would fit the bill of who he was. Can you kind of describe what he did for work? Yes, he was a grocery store manager for a grocery chain that was really growing. It ended up being uh, 10, 12 stores. And he was asked to manage one of these stores in Grayling. Everybody who knew him said he was bright, uh, above average intelligence. Um, He liked philosophy. He liked poetry. He wasn't very politically active. He didn't really have any political beliefs. He was more interested in, in philosophy. So, yeah, it seems like people really trusted him and he was very responsible and took his responsibilities pretty seriously. Yes, a hard worker, uh, reliable by all counts. Um, People who worked with him really enjoyed his company. The day Richard disappeared was October 29th, 1969. After arriving at work that day, the next thing we know is that around 1.30 p.m., Richard makes a call to his wife, saying he won't be home for their usual lunch date. It was a fall day. It was kind of cool. All the leaves were off the trees in northern Michigan, and he went to work, I believe it was a Wednesday, and had a pretty average day at work. At lunchtime, he called his wife and said, you know, I'm going for a ride. Let's not do lunch today. It was customary. They did did lunch quite a bit together, but then again, when he was stressed out, he would go out for a ride. And that's what he did. He he got in his car. Sometime in the afternoon, he called back to the store Um, from a neighboring town, Traverse City, Michigan, and told the manager there that he was taking the rest of the day off. And that's the last anybody's heard of him or has seen him. And he literally fell off the, the face of the earth at that time.
So Richard calls Jackie around lunchtime, saying he was going for a drive, something that wasn't that unusual for him. Jackie died in 2012, but Ross was able to get a lot of his information from Richard's daughter, Lisa, who he interviewed extensively for this story. Um, she was about 11 or 12 years old when, when her father disappeared. Um, she was extremely helpful in sharing uh, stories of her family and the struggles afterwards, you know, what came next, uh, the hard times with him being gone, and also the gnawing question of what happened to this man. The next thing we know about that day is that Richard ends up in Traverse City, a bigger city about an hour west from Grayling. Richard calls co-workers at Glen's Market and says that he won't be coming back to work that day. That is the last time anyone hears from Richard Lepsey. In the immediate aftermath of his disappearance, there's not much information about what happened exactly. There's no real details about Jackie panicking, no huge manhunt to find him. This may be because of what the owner of Glen's Market found after Richard went missing. The management at Glen's Market found that the safe was jammed shut on October 29th, and they called the locksmith out, and when they got it open a day later and audited it, $2,000 was missing. Now, I talked with the son of the owner of Glen's Market, uh, Glenn Cat, great guy, great family, and we talked about it, and he says, oh, I haven't thought about him in years, and we discussed the case, and he said he talked to his father about this case, you know, for over... Over time, every few years, they would bring it up and talk and talk about it. And they were grateful he only took $2,000 because he could have held receipts and he could have left with $20,000. But even though $2,000 would, you know, be the equivalent to ten or $12,000 in 1969, today's money, he could have had, you know, $100,000. He just took what he needed to leave. It seems that, at first, Richard's disappearance wasn't investigated as a missing person's case at all. It was investigated as an embezzlement case, a criminal case. They contacted the Grayling Police Department, who launched a joint investigation with the Michigan State Police. Now, no records of this investigation exist. They were all, you know, disposed of years ago because it was basically a case they were researching a... Uh, an embezzlement, I guess, and no charges were ever brought. So there was an investigation. He, uh, the, the surviving member of the Grayling Police Department also said that one time he was looking under the crawl space of the house, too, or looking through the basement for any clues in the missing person case. So I think some investigation was done just to make sure. But how deep, it's hard to say because, again, those records don't exist. After his disappearance, Richard's whole character came into question. Though well-liked, he was suspected of leading a somewhat double life. I, I did hear some things. I, I did hear he was under a lot of pressure. I mean, that is quite an enormous uh, job for somebody that young. Um, there were rumors that there were uh, that maybe he had an affair with somebody, but I, I found no proof of that. Just rumors that that could have happened. Um, so, I mean, there's always things in the background going on that people don't see or that aren't obvious. And that probably happens in most people's lives that are kept pretty quiet. So, you know, nothing really stands out as something that would make him want to leave or want to disappear. Because of these rumors, Richard's disappearance was seen as willfully leaving, abandoning his family and his job. Despite these accusations, Jackie, his wife, took it upon herself to look for her missing husband. Initially, uh, her and a family friend, another couple that were close with the Lepsies, they came to the Traverse City area, Sleeping Dune, Sleeping Dune National Park, and did a search through the area, some of the areas he loved to frequent hoping to find him. Um, on the way out of town, the friend suggested, hey, let's look at the airport parking lot. And Jackie was, well, why would we check there? And he says, let's just, you know, let's just take a look. And when they went there, they found his car uh, sitting unlocked with the keys in the ignition and half a pack of cigarettes on the dash. At 
After finding his car at the airport, Jackie reported this to police, who chased down this clue as a potential lead to finding Richard. Police said that a man who matched Richard's description got on a plane to Mexico with an unknown woman. I, I, I tracked down the only surviving member of the Grayling Police Department at the time. And he was older and he says, you have to forgive me. I'm, you know, starting to suffer from Alzheimer's. And uh, so my memory isn't great, but he remembered the case. And he remembered initially they thought he left with a female companion. And they went to the airport and they did find information that a person fitting the description who looked like him did leave. They thought there could have been a female companion, but who they thought he left with was away at school. Um, and I tracked this person down and she said the same thing. Yes, I was away at school and was surprised to hear that he had disappeared. But there are no missing women from the Grayling area, only him. Something that baffled me here is the idea that you could just get on a plane and disappear. In 1969, procedures for getting on a plane were much different than they are today. I mean, in the 60s, what kind of records were kept of airlines? Like, did they, what was required to get on a plane? Like, how did you do it back then? Do you know much about that? I know, like, nothing about that. Yes, you showed up with money, and that's it. They didn't check your ID. They asked for a name. You can give them any name you want. Um, there were cases in the late 60s and early 70s of people walking on planes with parachutes, uh, one guy with a shotgun, hand grenades. I mean, weapons were were brought, brought on aircraft all the time. There were no searches, and there were no checking even ID when you bought a ticket. It was just the wild, wild west of airline travel. After Richard's car is found, he is never heard from again. His car is the last trace of him. He took no belongings, just the clothes on his back, which are listed on the NamUs website, which is an online archive of missing persons cases, as, quote, blue jeans, a pumpkin-colored crew-neck sweater, a London fog beige raincoat, black loafers, and a watch. He didn't seem to appear to have left with anything. He didn't pack a suitcase. His, none of his clothes were missing. So... Here's the car unlocked. The keys are in the ignition. Um, half a pack of cigarettes on the dash. He, he smoked an obscure brand of cigarette at the time, and I don't, I don't even think it's available anymore. And, and that was unusual because he was a pretty uh, steady pack to two-pack-a-day smoker, so to leave cigarettes behind. So what happened to Richard? Where did he go? Did he get on a plane to Mexico with $2,000 and a mistress, never calling his children or anyone in his life again? Now remember, he married his high school sweetheart, and they had four children right away. So, I mean, that's, you know, a guy who never really got to sow his wild oats, so to speak. I mean, he settled down, and uh, and his wife was really, uh, really a strong-willed person, a strong personality. And I think she was probably the dominant in the relationship. And so, you know, there could have been that chance that, hey, he was, you know, not a bad looking guy, pretty bright and articulate. Maybe he did, you know, look at other relationships. It's, it's, you know, within the realm of possibility. But I mean, you know, there's also a chance he, he went off to Mexico. You know, there is that possibility because nobody back then, thought there, you know, it's now only after 40 years, people look back and say, you know, it's really strange we never heard from him again. It seems like initially, maybe Jackie just assumed, okay, he's a little under pressure, maybe he went to a place that he likes. Does it seem like she really thought, like, he's really gone? Did you find anything about what she was thinking? Lisa told me something interesting, and that was a day or two after he didn't come home, she sat the kids down and told them, I don't think your father's coming back. And so I think deep down she knew something was going on. So I think she had a feeling of something. Uh, they appeared on the Sally Jesse Raphael show 17 years later. I don't know if you saw that. 
Jackie, what happened? Well, one afternoon he just called me up and said, I'm going to go for a ride, Jackie, and that wasn't unusual. And he never came back. And so that was a really formative time in my life to lose somebody like that, so. Why do you think he left? Oh, we've talked about that, but we really don't know. <laughs> I, I personally think that he left because he got to the point in his life that he just couldn't handle it anymore. I think there must have been a breaking point, and for him, instead of putting a gun to his head, perhaps, or something, that was the point that he broke at and, and decided that that was the avenue to take. That was Richard Lepsey's wife, Jackie, and his daughter, Lisa, back in the 80s on the Sally Jesse Raphael show. Jackie here is older, with short blonde hair and a kind, round face. Lisa looks like her mother, with chin-length brown curly hair. We've reposted the video on our website, thinairpodcast.com. In the clip, Lisa speculates that her father left willfully because of the pressures in his life. The pressures of a young father of four with a serious job. Though her mother Jackie seems to agree that this is a possibility, Jackie never gave up the hope that her husband would come back. You know, I hate to say this, but is it, it must occur to you that, that maybe he, you know, died or something. Uh, well, that, that did go through our minds also, but um, I really don't think he's dead. You think he's out? I think he is. I think he's alive. I I have a lot of good feelings about that. Lisa told me her mother kept his clothes in the closet for 17 years. It wasn't until after they appeared on the Sally Jesse Raphael show and a few months later that produced no leads. They heard nothing and she said finally to her mom, you know, mom, it's time to get rid of those clothes. If dad came back, he probably wouldn't fit in any of those, and they're all out of style anyway. You know, it was uh, from 1969 to the 1980s. So she did. She she sold some of his clothes, gave some of away to uh, local charities. But that's how much she loved him and hoped he came back. She kept his clothes, everything the same, for that 17 years. The most disturbing possibility in this case for me is the idea that Richard was met with foul play that day when he went into work. What if someone forced him to take the money, killed him, and then staged his car at the airport to make it look like he flew off into the sunset? You know, and the case gets even stranger yet because now when I talk to uh, a co-worker of his and Lisa and everything, now people are starting to think, you know, maybe somebody killed him. Maybe somebody set him up and robbed him and killed him and he put his car at the airport because it's so unusual for him to disappear and then never to come back. And he had a very good relationship with his mother and his sisters and was really tight with uh, with his brother. And none of them heard from him again. And they said, there's just no way he could have stayed away. So something must have happened either at the time he disappeared or, you know, or soon thereafter that would keep him as a, away from his family. Yeah, it's, I mean, my mind is kind of reeling with, okay, did he go into the store and someone was there and they made him take money out and then drove him around and then framed? I mean, that is a fascinating idea that, yeah, he could have been murdered. And he had a shady friend who we'll call Jay, but everybody I talked to said he was a real ne'er-do-well. Uh, drinking problem, there was just a lot of rumors about Jay. Uh, and it seemed that when he started, when Lepsy uh, started ha- hanging out with this Jay character, he kind of changed himself, and, and not for the better. But people thought he was a bad influence. And now looking back in retrospect, I know a coworker said, you know, I think he had something to do with the disappearance. Um, but I could really not track down this person at all. I think they died probably in the late 70s, early 80s, and there's just nothing out there on this person. For all of these theories, so little evidence exists because of a lack of real investigation and because of the suspicion that fell on Richard himself. It's heartbreaking to think that he could have been robbed, murdered, and never really looked for at all. Well, uh, when Jackie went to the chief of the Grayling Police Department and, you know, said, hey, my husband's missing, and, you know, and he had been investigating the case, he told her 
um, you know, your husband's a big boy. He'll come back when he's good and ready. So they wouldn't take a missing persons report on him because he was considered a voluntary flight. And no charges were filed because he wasn't around. You know, I guess the biggest thing that worries me about this case is if he was murdered and set up uh, for that money and, and, and a robbery occurred, you know, not only was he robbed of his life, but he was robbed of his legacy. You know, instead now his children, some of his children are happy with him because they think he left. He just left. And what happened? If, well, what if that didn't happen? What if he was murdered and the money taken and his car staged at the airport? I mean, I guess in the back of my mind, I think to myself, well, I really hope that didn't happen. And, you know, if that did happen, hopefully somebody will step forward and say, hey, you know, my, my weird neighbor made this comment at one time. Or, you know, my cousin said he killed a guy sometimes. So, so I mean, by putting the story out here now, that is pretty interesting on many different levels, you know, hopefully it will drive some type of lead just to see what really happened because many things could have happened. Yeah, if it was a robbery, like you said, that's really devastating for Richard and that it's not just that, I mean, theoretically, he could have done nothing wrong. He could have been robbed and then forever everyone just thinks that he took money and took off that's horrible that does bother me but i th- i think all we can do is put his case out there and i think i've done a pretty good job of publicizing it and bring it forth and look for that hero that one person who can step up and say hey you know this happened In 1976, seven years after his disappearance, Richard is declared legally dead by his own family. Jackie never remarries, raising their four children on her own, even going to school and getting a nursing degree. She died in 2012. So, did Jackie ever remarry? Never remarried. Never dated again. She went back to uh, college and got her nursing degree and worked in nursing for her life and raised her four kids and lived in Grayling in in the same house. She really is quite uh, an amazing woman. Um, Strong, stoic, you know, always loved her husband, never stopped loving him, and always hoped that he would come back. And I guess the the question is, you know, is is what happened. And even when when it was obvious she was going to pass away when she was on her deathbed, um... I believe it was Lisa's partner who uh, was kidding and said, uh, wow, Jackie, you're going to find out what happened to Dick. That's what they called him. Uh, Friends called him Dick. Uh, You're going to find out what happened to Dick before all of us, you know, and they were kind of kidding around about it. Um, But it's really quite sad when you think about that. And in Grayling, where she's buried, there's a tombstone with her her name on it, and on the other side is Robert Richard Lepsey, and it's an empty grave with October 29, 1969 is the day he died because to the Lepsey family, that is the day he died. He disappeared and nobody heard from him since then. And then in November, 1971, two years after Richard disappears, another man gets on a plane who would also never be seen again. The name he gave for his ticket was Dan Cooper. Thirty-six passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, dressed in a business suit demanding $200,000 and carrying a plane briefcase which he told the crew held explosives. That news footage you heard aired the day after the hijacking happened, on November 25, 1971. Ross, in his book, discusses the possibility that Dan Cooper, also known as D.B. Cooper, was, in fact, the never-reported missing Richard Lepsey, the man who got on a plane to Mexico and was never seen again. I went to the library in Traverse City, Michigan, and pulled the microfilm of when he disappeared. And there was no note of his disappearance 
there was really nothing that stood out. I went through every page, every article of every newspaper to see what was happening in the area at the time. Um, and there was really nothing, but on the front page of every newspaper, there were stories of hijackings of aircraft and it was happening all the time. So I thought to myself, you know, there was this unsolved skyjacking I was familiar with back in 1971. I said, this guy disappeared in 1969. There's not going to be a huge amount of information on him. He was just an average guy. So in researching, there really isn't going to be a huge amount. And then I said, but this might be an opportunity to tell the story of that other skyjacker. And I can just not do a side-by-side -side comparison, but just kind of infer, you know, ooh, wouldn't that be something? D.B. Cooper is one of the most popular true crime cases in American history and has since become the stuff of legend. But it's worth a retelling here, at least the most important aspects of the case and the parts that could lead back to Richard Lepsey. The man later called D.B. Cooper gets on a plane in Portland, Oregon with a one-way ticket bound for Seattle, Washington, about a 30-minute flight. He sat in the back, lit a cigarette, and ordered a bourbon and soda. The flight took off at 2.50 p.m. He was later described by some of the 36 other passengers and flight attendants as being around 5'10 to 6 feet tall and weighing between 170 to 180 pounds. He wore a business suit and looked like he walked off the set of Mad Men, wearing a neatly pressed black jacket, a white collared shirt, a thin black tie clipped with a mother of pearl pin, black loafers, and a black lightweight raincoat. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper passes a note to a flight attendant. She drops the note in her purse, on red, thinking that Cooper just gave her his phone number. Upon seeing this, Cooper says, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. He was not nervous. He seemed rather nice. And other than he wanted certain things to be done, he never tried to harm myself. And although he was impatient a few times, he was never cruel or nasty or... Um, impolite to me in any way. That was Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant who stayed with Cooper for around five hours, describing Cooper's demeanor. As the flight attendant remembered, the note was written in all caps with a felt black pen and read something close to, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I will use it if necessary. I want you to sit beside me. You are being hijacked. He then showed her, opening his briefcase to reveal, as she later told the FBI, eight red cylinders with red insulated wires and a large cylindrical battery. This note, it was never recovered. Was the bomb real or did the stewardess later say it just looked like wires or? She described it to the FBI agents and the FBI agents believed it was a fake because she said the tubes were red. You know, it looked like dynamite, red tubes. You think a wily e. coyote, you know, but actually dynamite comes in gray or tan uh, case casing. So it's not a red casing. Road flares come with a red casing. Actual dynamite, commercial dynamite, is more of a tan color uh, casing on it. So they realized then it was probably a fake. The flight attendant informed the captain, who alerted authorities on the ground. They arranged his demands, which were four parachutes, $200,000, and a refueling truck to fuel the plane when they landed in Seattle. The plane circled for a few hours while authorities scrambled to find the parachutes and gather the money. The serial numbers were individually photographed by authorities. The other passengers were not aware that the plane was being hijacked and were told that the plane had a mechanical difficulty as they circled above Seattle. When they finally landed, it was 5.47 p.m. The passengers were let go and Cooper made the flight attendant stay with him. The items Cooper requested were given to him. Before taking off again, Cooper issued very specific flying instructions. Go to Mexico City, do not fly higher than 10,000 feet, lower the wheels, angle the flaps to 15 degrees, and do not land in the United States. When the captain told them that they would need to refuel before Mexico City, Cooper agreed to land in Reno, Nevada. They took off from the SeaTac airport at 7.34 p.m. The flight attendant showed Cooper how to lower the rear stairs at the back of the plane. Cooper instructed the flight attendant to go to the pilot's cabin and to close the barrier between first and second class. I can just picture Cooper standing on the empty plane, muddy in tow. He took off his black pencil-thin tie with the mother of pearl pin still attached. 
He left his Rally brand cigarettes, his empty plastic cup that held his bourbon and soda, strapped a parachute to his back, and used the cords from a different parachute to wrap and secure his bundle of money. And then he jumped. And he was, you know, the plane was at 10,000 feet. That's a couple miles off the ground and jumping at night. Uh, and basically a, a business suit and a raincoat and loafers and no goggles to protect the eyes or anything. Um, you know, that's not the sign of an experienced skyjacker. And uh, many experts think the first thing that happened is his shoes blew off. So now you're in your uh, stocking feet and going to land who knows where in, in the middle of rural Washington state, you know, not a very friendly place for a person uh, with no shoes on. Because the exact time of Cooper's jump is unknown, there are a number of possible landing sites, all of them within the densely wooded area along the Oregon and Washington border. He was never found, his body never recovered, and many doubt he could have made it out alive. They, they originally thought he landed near a town called Ariel, which is, uh, you know, it's actually not too terribly far from Mount St. Helens. So that was where they initially thought he jumped, but there's some confusion in that. And now I, I think he jumped further south by the Columbia River. Uh, there's been some uh, interviews that have been released by the FBI recently where the pilots say, hey, we really didn't know where he was when he jumped. You know, we think we were in the area of Portland, not over Portland, but, you know, Portland proper when he jumped. And, you know, we feel bad we didn't know exactly where that was. So I think the FBI did the best they could with the information they had in the time at the time. But, you know, this is 1971. They didn't have GPS or anything. I mean, it was all pretty much guesswork back then. Well, I think we like the romantic idea of, you know, this guy standing up against the machine and taking the money and jumping out and doing this wild, you know, almost stagecoach robbery for the for the 20th century. You know, we love that idea. But then you look at, okay, well, afterwards, there's no clue or sign of this guy. Hmm. And it wasn't like he was a low-profile criminal he wanted the attention i mean he wanted the national news that's why he picked this venue to uh to do it so what are the similarities between db cooper and richard lepsey well ross argues that they look alike according to later descriptions of cooper looking at the pictures side by side it's hard to ignore a similarity between the two men both have black hair weigh about the same amount and are the same height both are handsome in their own way. Cooper is somewhat thinner than Lepsey, with a more pointed face. They dressed very similar, very fashionable for men at the time. Neither of them had a discernible accent. I looked at Robert Richard Lepsey's case, and then I started researching the D.B. Cooper case, and I said, well, that's interesting. These guys are the same height, other the same weight, same eye color, hair color, and then I started looking at the pictures of the FBI composite sketches. And I was kind of amazed. I mean, there was somewhat of a resemblance. I thought a resemblance there. Some people see a resemblance, some people might not see it. But I thought, well, that's pretty darn interesting. And then I started researching kind of what the FBI has done with the case. And the FBI believes that the skyjacker perished in the jump. They don't believe he survived the jump. So the FBI is looking for a missing person who hasn't been seen and you know, since 1971 is when the Cooper hijacking happened. And they're also looking from somebody from the Midwest because the stewardesses who spent five hours with him, so they spent quite a bit of time with him, they said he had no discernible um, speech pattern, or no, no discernible accent. So they believed he was from the Midwest, and these are stewardesses who fly around the country, so they, they've heard all different, different kinds of ac accents. And so I thought, wow, the more I put things together, the more these two kind of looked alike, and there's nothing connecting the two other than really appearance, and they disappeared about the same time. But I just thought it was pretty fascinating that here's a guy who's a very obscure missing person from the middle of Michigan, and he happens to fit the bill for this missing person the FBI is looking for. 
and nobody's put that together before. But it's such an obscure case. I mean, how would people put that together, you know? Cooper was later described by people on the plane as relaxed, calm, well-spoken, and polite, something that also fits descriptions of Lepsy. Cooper tipped the flight staff and even offered to add meals for flight attendants to his list of demands. Lepsy was well-known and loved in his community as a kind, giving neighbor and friend. Lepsy disappeared two years before Cooper staged his famous hijacking, possibly flying to Mexico. Could Lepsy have left with his $2,000, planned this hijacking for two years, and then somehow ended up in Portland, ready to execute his plan? Ross argues that D.B. Cooper was not someone who was very experienced with a parachute and was likely not an experienced skydiver. Yeah, he and he was above the cloud cover at that point, so he couldn't have seen, you know, things on the ground. He didn't know where he was. He never asked the pilots where he was. They were, you know, a half hour into the flight at least. So he was just jumping blind, and that's another reason they believe it was uh, in a person with, you know, very little parachuting knowledge is because no experienced skydiver would have made this jump. Even from a million dollars, they wouldn't have made this jump because it would have been very tough to survive. And his parachute selection, he had the chance for two main chutes, and he had a steerable, uh, more comfortable unit, and he bypassed that for an older military unit. And, uh, and he would have came down quite quickly. And if you ever watch the old... Uh, training where they they land on the ground and they roll they have to do that because you would blow out a knee or an ankle uh, because you come down so quickly so without knowing where the ground is they think he would have sustained some type of leg or ankle injury you know pretty severe upon landing and now you're out in the woods and now you have a hard time walking around and the next day a manhunt was started one of the biggest manhunts in washington state history and nothing was found. So it would have been hard for him to get with uh, the parachutes, the money and everything somewhere to be hidden and escape without being noted by anybody anywhere. Both of the men disappeared into the void like magicians. Cooper left his tie and cigarettes on the plane. Lepsy left his keys and cigarettes in his car. Neither man has ever been seen or heard from since they disappeared. This connection between D.B. Cooper and Richard Lepsey is one that Lisa, his daughter, isn't ruling out. Uh, when you spoke to Lisa, does she talk about this connection? Does she believe it when you talk to her? Um, she's pretty open-minded. She thinks it's a possibility. She does see a resemblance there. But, you know, she, I guess I kind of follow her. She says, you know, some days I believe... He ran off. Some days, I believe, he was murdered. You know, so it's like almost some days you just look at the case and you think, oh, this guy never made it out of Michigan. You know, he was he was set up and robbed. Some days you think, man, look at that picture next to the FBI composite sketch. They're looking for a missing guy, and look how close it is. You know, and here's an adventurous guy who, you know, hey, took other people's money and used the aircraft in a crime before could it be him? So I I think I get the sense from her she's just without answers. And I I'm kind of feel the same way. I can't pin it down either. I think it's fascinating, but I don't know which way to lean. I guess I lean a different direction every day. If Richard Lepsey and D.B. Cooper are one and the same, what happened to Cooper? The speculation in this case is rampant. If he made it out alive or if he died of injuries in the woods. One piece of evidence that has fueled a lot of debate was the 1980 discovery of bundles of cash along the banks of the Columbia River by an eight-year-old boy digging for a campfire. The money was badly disintegrated, but the serial numbers confirmed the cash to be a part of the D.B. Cooper ransom. I was reading a little bit about the money that was found, and they have, it seems like they've done a lot of, there's a lot of theories on like river currents and mud and an animal. It seems like there's a lot of theories about that particular finding. It is it is mind-boggling the amount of theories. And originally the FBI had a hydrologist look at it and he identified the dredge layer, what he believed was the dredge layer, and he thought the money was on top of the dredge layer. And years later another scientist came through 
and looked at it and said, no, it's part of this other layer. So you have two people with differing opinions. And, you know, I think there's a possibility they both got it wrong because that area is so dynamic that we really don't understand how much dredging has been done since, you know, I mean, I think dredging was done every decade, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. And that wasn't taken into account initially when they talk about where the money was found. So I, I think it's as, as clear as mud, pardon the pun or whatever, that, you know, this money discovery. Um, but to me, you know, being that close to where the plane went over the Columbia, you know, speaks volumes, especially 40 years later. If somebody had survived and was running around with this money and burying it or spending it, somebody would have heard something. You know, to me, it seems like this person probably landed in the water and disappeared and that money was dredged out. And that's it. Because of the lack of investigation at the time Richard went missing, there was little to no information about either Richard or his disappearance available to the public. Lisa took it upon herself to publicize her father's story. Lisa was the one who entered her father's information into NamUs as late as 2011, which means that much of the information about this case has only been available in the last five years. Other than maybe 10 people in Grayling, Michigan, which is a small town in the, in the middle of nowhere, really, um, nobody would know about this case until 2012, I believe, is when Lisa, after her mother passed away, she went to the NamUs website, which is an excellent missing person site, and the Charlie Project website, and put up some pages on her father. And that's where I came across the story is, you know, just those little things put up, hey, here's this guy from Grayling, his car was found here, he disappeared, and that's the only thing out there about this guy. So nobody knew about this. And so I I just was pretty fascinated that, you know, here's a guy that could possibly be this missing person the FBI's looking for right here in, in the middle of Michigan, northern Michigan. There were no news stories ever published about it um you know everybody had just signed off on him and said okay he took off and never came back and that's it and so yeah until lisa actually took the time to create those um to create the the web pages in those missing person websites yeah there was just nothing after he was declared legally dead, the Lepsey family went into litigation with their insurance company over Richard's life insurance, which was a little less than $10,000. The conflict was that there was never a body, no proof that Richard was actually dead. Lisa's family sued and won, with the condition that if Richard ever showed up, that the family would have to repay the insurance money. Well, it was done for legal purposes because his name was still on the house and on things like that, like possessions. So he, you know, so he still had a stake in things and, and a legal responsibility. And after seven years, she went to court. Um, and there were some insurance things behind that, too. And the insurance company said, hey, we don't want to pay off because you're not producing a body. You know, but there was no contact with him. So they went to court and they gave court depositions which were, you know, pretty, pretty interesting, but really didn't yield anything uh, earth-shattering. And and that was it. And after the after the court heard everything, they said, "Yep, we're gonna we're gonna declare him dead." And the insurance company settled under the provision that if he did appear again, that uh, they would have to pay back all the insurance money, or Jackie would have to pay back all the insurance money, which was probably less than ten thousand dollars at the time, in 1976, 1977. In the 1990s, Lisa asked her future sister-in-law to run her father's social security number to look for any activity. The sister-in-law ran it, but found no information, no usage. However, three days later, two men showed up on Lisa's doorstep. Uh, yes, I believe it was in the 90s, and she was living in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And her future sister-in-law um, worked at a hospital in the credit department or the collections department 
and they had access to run credit reports on people. Well, Lisa said, hey, my father's missing. You know, will you run? And gave her the social security number and her future sister-in-law ran the social security number and said nothing. There's no activity on a social security account. There's zero that is happening. She, you know, so now it's typical. There's no, no activity or anything. So a couple days later, a couple guys show up at Lisa's door and, you know, knock at it. And she opens the door and they said, did you find your father? And she was kind of taken aback. And she said, no, did you find your father? And they're like, no, no, we're wondering if you found your father. And, you know, and she said one guy was really abrasive and the other guy kind of say that sat back and kind of observed, but they were really kind of grilling her on her father and they were looking for her father. And they said they were from the insurance company that paid out on one of the claims and gave Lisa his card. Well, they were really weird. They kind of intimidated her and then they got in the car and took off. And she kind of thought about it over the next couple of weeks and she called the insurance company and said, you know, hey, do you have a couple of agents? One of them's this, and she told them the information on the card. And they said, well, look, you know, they said our agents wouldn't come and investigate like this. You know, that doesn't sound like something we would do. Let me check into this. So she got a call back from the insurance company saying, we don't have any agents of that name. You know, they're not from this company or there's not even a department on the card the department on the card wasn't even a part of the insurance company. So that really freaked her out because who were these guys? You know, why were they so interested in her dad? You know, and this is back in the, in the nineties when the internet was just brand new. And so, you know, to fly down from Chicago and rent a car and show up at her doorstep in a couple of days after a, you know, brief little inquiry on her dad, um, you know, 20 years after a payout for, you know, $10,000, it just does not make any sense. And then the insurance company denies that they're part of the insurance. Co it's a very weird. That's just one of the weird wrinkles in this. That it's just strange. These mystery men who show up after the credit check. I asked Ross if Lisa kept the business card and she did. This encounter left such an impression on her that she kept it after all these years. Ross sent me a photo of the card. The name on it is Charles J. Mitchell, director, representing the home office, and the department listed is, quote, special activities. When Lisa called the insurance agency, John Hancock Mutual, they said that the man and the division did not exist. Who were these men if they weren't insurance agents? Could they have been from the FBI, wondering about a connection to D.B. Cooper all the way back in the 90s? Could they be important men who Richard got into trouble with after he left, and they were monitoring any evidence of his resurfacing? Or were they just insurance agents working in a secretive, need-to-know department? For me, these mystery men showing up at Lisa's door is one of the most bizarre and compelling pieces in the Richard Lepsey story. Richard Lepsey's case is open and unsolved. Ross Richardson has written extensively on this case in his book, Still Missing, Rethinking the D.B. Cooper Case and Other Mysterious Unsolved Disappearances. Well, Still Missing is my latest book, and it's about a missing person and a missing aircraft and a missing ship. And the missing aircraft, had a, it was flown by a couple who disappeared in 1977, somewhere over Michigan. And they're the parents of a good friend of mine. So the book has a real, uh, you know, personal meaning to me. And we're hoping by putting stories out about this missing aircraft and about Robert Richard Lepsey, that somebody who might know something will come forward and help solve these, because these are solvable cases. Um, I have another book, Search for the Westmoreland, which is about a treasure shipwreck I found in 2010. If you're into uh, shipwreck stories, uh, shipwreck diving, things like this, it's pretty interesting. 
And I also have a website, michiganmysteries.com, which talks about missing ships, missing aircraft, and missing persons of the Michigan region. Um, you know, if somebody's uh, listening and knows something, you know, please step forward and contact uh, police department. It might even be concerning a different missing persons case or anything. It just takes one person to be a hero and step up with information and sharing it with somebody to help solve some of these cases. I mean, they, they are solvable with the great communication tools we have with the internet these days. We have these amazing tools now to bring these cases forward and share information and really bring a lot of these people home to their loved ones. If you have any information relating to the disappearance of Richard Lepsey, please contact the Grayling City Police Department, whose contact information can be found on our website, thinairpodcast.com. Or you can also use our contact form to email us directly and we can relay any information. D.B. Cooper's identity remains unknown to this day, and his case is one of the most popular true crime stories of the 20th century. For related links to the D.B. Cooper story, please visit our website at thinairpodcast.com. We'd like to say thank you to Ross Richardson for speaking with us about this fascinating case. To buy his book, Still Missing, Rethinking the D.B. Cooper Case and Other Mysterious Unsolved Disappearances, check out our website at thinairpodcast.com for a link to the Amazon page. Today's episode of Thin Air Podcast is brought to you by our donators over at patreon.com forward slash thinairpodcast. If you like what we do and you want to hear more, consider making a donation so we can keep bringing you quality stories like the one you heard today. The theme song for today's episode was provided by our friends at Conifer Audio. If you are interested in original composition or other audio services for your own podcast, drop them a line at coniferaudio at gmail.com. Additional music provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find his music at chriszabriskie.com. Links are also available on our website. Just a heads up, our episodes will now be released every other Monday instead of Fridays. That means we'll be back in two Mondays.